And do I not loathe those who who rise up against you? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Amen. This is where we would usually, by tradition, do the glory of pottery, but we're going to switch it up a little this week. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit later on when I do the synod report about psalmody. Uh, You all know it in background, but to some of you it'll be a new idea. But God actually wrote 150 songs and stuck them in the Bible. For a long time, especially in the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, we kept singing the psalms, but some groups exclusively the psalms and no other songs. Then in the 1920s through the 1950s, that kind of faded out and more hymns were sung to the point now where most churches sing only hymns and no psalms. So we went from exclusive psalmody to exclusive hymnody, uh, which is a little weird. So, you know, especially in this denomination, there's this push to remember the old ways because things are not less valuable or less pure or less pristine simply by being ancient. So one of them that we've sung at this church before that we'll sing again today is uh, Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. If you have one of the ARP Psalters, this is a book that outlines ways to sing all 150 psalms. But it's also in our regular hymnal. It's number 38. Now, every one of the great hymns that you love from the faith, the vast majority of them, all of those melodies are ancient melodies that are from the old soldiers. Most of them were written in the 15 and 1600s. This one particularly, is this one? Who's this by? This is the Cremond. Now, Cremond is an ancient Celtic word. Everybody that has a background in England, Ireland, Scotland, or Wales, this word would mean an absolutely strong protector, like a guard over your soul. And so the song is much older than it being placed to this music, but it does have a place in the resonant background traditions of the church. Here's the thing. Can traditions be an impediment to a person's relationship with God? Absolutely. Can traditions also help to carry things that are very important and protect them through time for the church? They absolutely can do that too. Well, one of the things that has carried true and proper doctrine through the history of the church has been our songs, our songbooks, our hymnals, and the Psalters. So this song we're about to sing is an ancient song. It's probably about a thousand years old. It used to be a hill song that they would sing in the countryside as they were taking care of their flocks and their fields. But it's been preserved as a song dedicated to the Lord in this. The 23rd Psalm says this, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
People of God, by way of general confession, do you believe that you've sinned every day in thought, word, and deed? We do. And do you believe that if not for the righteousness of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you would have no hope either in life or in death? We do. And I simply declare to you what the message of the Bible is from beginning to end, that if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, your sins are forgiven and you are restored to a right relationship with your God. Lord God, our Father, we want to remember many of our members, the particular petitions of this local church, part of your universal church and worldwide church, Lord God. There are many other things that we could have on these lists made of paper, Lord God, but we know that our names are written on your hand and that you know us constantly in everything that we're dealing with, everything that we're struggling with, all of our torments and all of our sufferings, our tests, trials, and temptations are in your hands. And so we commit ourselves to you, Lord God, knowing that you know what is best. And so we pray for the healing of our bodies because we know that you are our great healer. And we pray for the healing of our souls because we know that you are our great savior. We pray for presidents and princes and kings and those in positions of power and authority that you would have them guide according to your law so that we might have real and true justice in the land. We pray for your church here and around the world, Lord God that you might bless her with peace and with pulpits full of grace, that your gospel might be preached and that by the power of your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, many might come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray these things praying the prayer that your son taught us to pray. Please rise as we sing the Lord's Prayer.
this jean. I did. It's lunchtime. <laughs> there it goes. Hello. Everybody can hear me. Okay. Now here's a few shots from what we call Synod. As you know, there's three different levels to the Presbyterian Church's form of government. There's the local church, which is the most important. That's what you are all members of. Could somebody turn down the main volume here so this doesn't feed back? Thank you, Anna. Go ahead and get it. Then there's the next level, which is called the Presbytery. Now, the Presbytery includes all the churches in this region or area. You are also part of the Mississippi Valley Presbytery that goes all the way from Missouri all the way down to Alabama. It's a huge Presbytery. You know this is an old denomination predating the existence of the United States of America. So even though all Presbyterian churches are national, a big portion of this Presbyterian church is in Canada because there was no Canada when the church came together. Folks came over here from the old country, and they set up one on American soil, and that's the one that we're still members of. So as you know, the reason that we do things the way they did 500 years ago is that this denomination has not changed much, and that's the way we like it. With that, though, being a part of a presbytery that's huge, one of the changes that happened is up until now in history, this denomination has pretty much thought there's nothing of much value on the other side of the Mississippi River. So all the churches are to the east of us, and all the population density is in there, because that's the original colonies, that's where it all started. Pretty much, they think that we are the edge of the known world, right? And uh, Lord knows nothing good ever came out of California, I'll tell you that. Uh, so another interesting thing that happened is... You guys know about the changes that happen in churches, right? Those of you from the SBC or a background in the Southern Baptist Church know that there are lots of changes going on there. People are conflicted about it. In our own set of cousin churches in the Presbyterian Church in America, there's a lot of conflicts, and people don't know how it's all going to turn out. But we've had more churches than perhaps ever before start to talk to the ARP about changing out of the denomination where they're at and coming into the ARP. One of the reasons that the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, has been able to maintain its identity for 300 years is because they don't let a lot of people in. Standards are high, and uh, uh, they're a little bit particular. So we started having applications from churches in Washington State and uh, Idaho and California and places like that that we don't have a presbytery. You know, the Mississippi Valley uh, Presbytery is for the Mississippi Valley, right? But we're the closest thing to them. So the motion was put forward, and uh, if it's concurrent with the decision of the Mississippi Valley Presbytery, it will be passed, that the Mississippi Valley Presbytery gets the entire rest of the United States, within reason. Five states have already been added. So that means that all of the church planting and all of the new churches that would be coming in from the entire western United States, which includes places as close to us as Louisiana and Texas, uh, would all be part of the Mississippi Valley Presbytery. 
we would be planting all of those churches and bringing them in and discipling them and educating them on what it is to be part of the old historic faith. It's actually a huge compliment that they want us to do this. It's also kind of a huge pain in the neck, but that's a, you know, it's, it would be a lot of work, right? We're expecting this group of churches that you're a part of to start bringing in churches from other states within the next six months. This presbytery has been going through a time of rescission. We've gotten smaller and smaller. I think we've only got 29 or 30 active churches anymore in this presbytery. Lots of the old ones from hundreds of years ago, well, you know, they just faded out. That happens sometimes. As you guys know, the first reason that I was called out here and used to fly out from California is to retrain some of the old, wonderful churches that are a couple of hundred years old in the Reformed faith that their own physical ancestors believed when they planted those churches hundreds of years ago. We called the whole program going backward to get forward. There's a lot of things going on. I've talked to you several times about this church planting churches, but also this presbytery planting churches in this area. It's all because of demand. It's not because of ambition. In other words, we have folks out there that are like, I would love to have an ARP church within driving distance. Some of you might think to yourself, why come? But really, a lot of folks are looking for what we do here. And they reach out to this church specifically and to members of this denomination specifically in this region because they just don't have that. They just don't have that. So uh, along with that is this thing about psalms. The thing about tradition is it's either bad or good. The tradition of singing some psalms, you can't make any biblical argument against it. When God wanted to record songs in the Bible itself, he wrote 150 of them and stuck them in the Bible. That we would have some kind of a disposition like this. Well, I'm not singing anything in the Bible. That would be weird, right? Some churches, though, it seems that even though they don't say that, it's right up close to that. We will sing anything but the Bible. Now, here's the thing about a good hymn. A good hymn is only a good sermon or a good prayer put to music, right? That's all they are. So they're good. We have prayers and we have sermons. These are put to music so you can sing them to God. That's awesome. But we don't want to be preclusive and think that our humanly, human ingenuity and our ability to write music is somehow comparable to God's music written in Scripture itself. So anyway, denominationally wide... Everybody wants to remind their churches that we do have a tradition in a background of singing a psalm once in a while. I'm not an exclusive psalmist. You'll never come in here and I'll try to convince you we should only be singing psalms in a, in a service. But that we don't sing any is not just against the denomination. It's against the flow of the Christian church in history. They always sang them. You have to remember that when Jesus sat down and he prayed with his people and he healed them and they had a service, it almost always says and they sang a psalm. Now, when it says they sang a psalm, they mean a psalm. There's even this verse here from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. And do not get drunk with wine, because that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in the heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Bible, in the New Testament, that you read and you love and you're trying to follow, if they had a church service, they sang the Psalms. 
I'm not saying that that means we have to do exactly what they did, but what they did wasn't wrong, right? They weren't making some kind of a horrible mistake. There's a normative element of singing psalms. Here are the three main reasons that I have found through the years that people don't want to sing psalms. Uh, Number one, they sound kind of archaic and old-fashioned, and that's because they are. Our culture is hip-hop and dance music and heavy metal, right? And the church is not. Here's the thing. If we resist these great works of art from the past because the style isn't resonant with us, it's probably a problem in us and not in the songs themselves. I'll say that again. If you hear the song and it just sounds weird to you, out of place, that's probably a problem in us and not in the psalms themselves. In other words, it's not that we take away everything contemporary and everything written in the last five years and everything beautiful done by these different artists and these different uh, Christian corporations that make us music and things. We don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, but we, we definitely... The baby needs a bath. You know what I mean? Uh, like Hillsong. You guys have heard me explain many times. You've got these very famous preachers that go on TV and YouTube and stuff, and they say, if you play a Hillsong song in your church, you're just guiding your congregation to hell. And I'm like, really? They're pretty cute. Pretty innocuous. A lot of it's from the Bible. They're just singing about Jesus. And what they say is, yeah, but if you get bent down and go to that church that the preachers are preaching bad things, well, maybe so, but I don't even know who those people are. In the church, we judge all things by the word of God, and we test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. I don't really care where a song comes from. I care where it goes. There's people that wrote some of the great hymns of the faith and these kind of things that were basically, you know, terrible people, and we still sing those hymns, right? A hymnal is just a fallible collection of songs written by fallible human beings like you or I. I was on the committee that put together the new Trinity hymnal, the red one that everybody loves. Some of the conversations about which song went in had a lot more to do with whose mother-in-law loved a song than the godliness of the song itself. That's how you get a hymnal, okay? In our own hymnal, you know, one of my kids noticed, one of my kids came to me, I won't say Ian's name, but he came to me... (laughs) And he said, Dad, why is the national anthem of Canada in our hymnal? Oh, Canada. Are we, do we sing that? I'm like, well, no, you know, I mean, they're probably trying to sell the hymnal in Canada, and Canada likes it. You know, we've got songs in there that probably shouldn't be in a, in a hymnal. And yet at the same time, many of our psalms from our background are also in this hymnal, just they're all sneaky. None of them say, this is a great old song from the Psalter from the previous generation six and seven hundred years ago. So I want to show you this website that is called Psalter.org. Psalter.org. And it's a place to get initiated and to learn these. It has all 150 psalms, especially of the kind in our... Do I have the book there? This is the ARP Psalter. It's all the psalms put to music for singing. And before we think to ourselves, I'm not going to like any of these songs. These songs are going to be terrible and written by, you know, old Scottish farmers with long beards and Birkenstocks. And it's not actually true. A lot of these things, how many of you have taken the time in your life to really listen to Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, Hayden, all of those guys? Well, a lot of those guys are the ones that wrote these melodies. 
Like here's Psalm 2. It's just the music. This whole composition was by Bach, who wrote all of his music as an ordained minister of music for the Lutheran Church. Nothing by Bach was written for secular purposes. He wouldn't have any of it. So at the end of every composition, he wrote, Glory to God only. Now, another thing that you can do at this website, and of course it's all free, I invested heavily in the professional version, which is costing me $1 a month. In which, I can go in here, and I can pick out the different harmony parts. Say I only want to hear the bass part. And then the soprano part. But here's why the soprano part is different. Every song you sing out of the hymnal that we think the melody, the way the song goes, we're all singing the soprano part. Here's a theory, but there's a lot of heft to this theory. Why do men not sing in church anymore? Now, as you know, you look around, we've got a lot of men at this church. There are a lot of churches out there that are 75, 80% women. Uh, To get men to sing, you have to give men something to sing, or at least not make it unbearably hard for them to sing. And a lot of the songs are written at little high, you know, up here, and and they they can't, so then they have to go down here and go the octave below and that type of thing. These songs are zesty, they're peppy, they've got some heft to it. They also have a level of musical intelligence that we're unaccustomed to because we were raised with like the Beatles and the Eagles, right? Uh, An assortment of birds and bugs, but these are a little harder, but the soprano part is what most of you guys are singing all the time. about that. How many of you were in a choir or some kind of choral or in school or any of those things? Not enough of you. Oh my goodness. Uh, here's the thing. You, you remember when a song would really start to pop? Where it would go from we're humming along this song and then all of a sudden, bam, it would hit you right in the face and become beautiful. A lot of that was because everybody knew their parts. And when everybody sings their parts, a rather ordinary song becomes an explosion of melody and harmony. And when Bach was writing these and when the church put them to music to be the Psalms, this is one of the things that they had in mind. Uh, Men don't sing because they're not really given anything to sing. In this generation, they had stuff to sing. 
The bass section of the choir was usually the biggest section. These days, you know, it's, it's hard to get guys to sing bass. And there is nobody singing tenor. You know, I try to, but, you know, I'm... Uh, if you give them a chance, these songs will do the work for you. They will become a part of your spiritual diet and you will see richness and depth and meaning in them. And the lyrics, quite simply, by any human author that exists, cannot be surpassed. These are actually the ones written by God. Uh, you'll notice they're faster. And if you watched any of the uh, synod, you'll notice that all the songs are faster than we do them here. Uh, that's the way it was in those days. Most of the time, when they got together for worship, no one had an instrument. Later on, things like the pipe organ and stuff were invented and the harpsichord, and that's more of a Mozarty thing, you know, and he was mainly, you know, writing about other stuff. But they didn't have instruments, and so they would get together and they would sing these songs and they would all know their parts and they would sing them loudly and proudly in a field or in a house and that's the way the music of the church started. Did you know that everything in your hymnal was written by just some member of church, some church somewhere and then spread around through the different churches until they all adopted it and it became these songs that we know and love? Every church was producing music. If you think I might be asking you to try to produce music for the church, it's okay. You can do that. All churches in history had to produce their own music because most of them at some times didn't read music and didn't have enough instrumentation. And the piano is of relatively recent invention. The guitar is just a piano that you can carry around. I know it seems very different, but really one you're brushing the strings and the other you're hitting the strings with little hammers. But we should be able to embrace this kind of thing at least in as much as it is beautiful. It's not ugly. It's harder but it's still beautiful. Uh, anyway, I, I gave you on your uh, order of service, this song is on the back of those. So if you get a chance, go to this place, uh, salter.org, and maybe work on learning your part a little bit, and at least maybe once a month or twice a month, we'll start putting a psalm in there. And I will warn you as to which ones they are, so you can learn them. But let's go ahead and sing this one.
has, has become of our norm now because of COVID, we have our offering and tithes in the back in that box if you feel led. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what uh, you have given us, Father, and we ask that you bless the little bit that we give back, that you multiply it to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise. Please rise. We pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, today, you know, as I've been out of town, uh, we're going to have a guest preacher. Uh, you guys know I, I brag about our people quite a bit. Uh, even at Presbytery, you know, you get together with the pastors and we, we all tell them all, all, each other all our sorrows and, you know, how bad. It, uh, here's the thing. They thought I was faking it. I had no complaints. I love my church. You guys are great to me. Uh, I don't have no problems with my elders. I don't have no problems with my deacons. Uh, and here's the other thing that is very unusual. I want you guys to understand how unusual this is. We don't have a single elder or a deacon I could not put in this pulpit on a Sunday, and you would get a sound, edifying sermon. It's not the way it always is, Right? They're men of the word. They're men of spirituality. I don't know what will happen with this church in the future or what will happen with all y'all, but I expect that this church will inevitably in the future produce many pastors, uh, many elders, uh, and frankly just do a lot of stuff. Now today we're having uh, Howie Mays is going to present the word to us today. As you know, Howie, uh, Howie's a man to be respected. He's done a lot in life. He's just celebrating his 50th anniversary to Jan this year. He's a studier of the word, but he's also a spiritual man that is edifying to people. One of the things that is very impressive to a pastor is when you hear, he prayed with me. It might seem like a small thing to you, but it's a big thing to me. When somebody comes to me and says, Howie sat down with me and prayed with me, uh, that kind of spiritual attention of care that's exactly where it's at, right? So, Howie, if you wouldn't mind coming forward and presenting the word for us, we'd appreciate it. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, I had plenty of time to prepare, but before we get down to serious worship, I want to spread a little church history with you. As you make up a presentation or something, you kind of got to time yourself, see how long it's going to take. 
you don't want it to take, you know, you want it to be long enough to do some good, but you don't want it to be too long. And that got me thinking about a little bit of church history. Oh, maybe before we get down to serious worship, uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, we had a guest pastor come in, and the people that have been here a while know exactly who I'm talking about. But anyway, he got up here and started preaching, and he preached, and he preached, and he preached, and about 1.30, he started winding things down. <laughs> well, with us senior citizens, we sit two or three hours in one spot, body parts start to get numb. <laughs> and by 1.30, I had no feeling from the waist down. <laughs> but when we all had to stand up and uh, stand up for the closing hymn, you ought to heard the groans and the moans of, of the old, older people. And poor old Teresa and Jim that I always sit behind them, I thought I was going to have to get a wrecker in to hoist them up. <laughs> but they did eventually get up. But uh, uh, that was about 1.30. I promise I won't keep you a minute past 1.15. <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness now, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for another beautiful day. Every day is a, thank, is a day of thanksgiving and love for you. We love you for the loving grace you bestow on us daily. May this day be filled with love and humility while we worship you. Well, I want us to all turn to uh, well, first off, today's topic is about love and hate. Love being a blessing from God, no doubt, and hate being straight from the devil, who that fellow doesn't get as quite as much airtime as he should, but uh, let's turn to First Corinthians chapter 13 and let's see if I can get through the bottom part of this without messing it up but it says if I speak in tongues of men and angels and have not love I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith and uh, as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned. But I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or uh, resentful it does not rejoice at long at wrongdoing but rejoices in truth love bears all things believes all things hopes all things and endures all things 
love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And when the perfect comes and the partial passes away, but when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even if I have been seen fully. So faith, hope, and love abide these things, but the greatest of them all is love. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't give us a definition of love, but he stressed the importance of love. We all know that love for our spouses is different than love for our families. We don't love our kids the same way we love our friends. But love has so many different meanings. It means so many different things to so many people. But if you look closely at chapter 13, the first three verses were pretty awesome. They told it like it was. And uh, that is full of meaning to me. But the first three verses are kind of like a warning uh, that like without the motivation of love, all good deeds, including service for the Lord, will profit nothing in God's eyes. A loving spirit is more important than words, generosity, or knowledge. You know, on Valentine's Day, the whole world, I think it's worldwide now, that we really go all out to celebrate romantic love. And there are flowers and candy and big red hearts. But there are also quiet strolls in the moonlight soft I I love you's and some of them are heartfelt and some of them may not be but what we need to focus on is the greatest love story of all times which I've heard this all my life John 3.16 for the God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who believeth him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Can you imagine having so much love for someone that you give up your only child for the sake of others? But there's something a little bit more to this verse. The Son, Jesus, He had to agree to this. He had to agree to fulfill his father's will. Jesus 
gave all he had to give his life. I'm sure he didn't have any material things. He probably didn't know where his next meal was coming from. But God provided for him. His father provided for him. But while fake love, it is only, it's only concerned about wants and needs. While real love gives up everything for another person. Even if it means giving their life. The ultimate gift, the ultimate love, is when someone gives their life for someone else. And Jesus gave all he had, his life. Romans 12, verse 9 says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. We have, to let, we have to let all we do be done in love. We have to unburden ourselves with thoughts of hate. Through hate, through loving God, we can all be free. Now, Matthew... Uh, five, four, uh, Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48. Praying for someone who persecutes you has got to be one of the hardest things that a Christian can do. Let's read, uh, go to Matthew 5. Verse 43 through 48. It says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, You love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which is a good one. That is hard to do. So that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain to the just and unjust, for you love who loves you. What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And you greet only your brothers. What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as, as your Father is perfect. Uh, but praying for your Praying for your uh, enemies is hard. But let's go back to self-love. I want to talk about self-love. Has anyone known someone 
that was so selfish and so me-oriented that they ruined their lives and caused pain to every life they've touched. That, they're out there. These people are out there. As I spent my early childhood making my older sister's, Margaret's, life miserable, and she says I did a pretty good job, but she says she loves me anyway, which is a good thing. But my mom was this wonderful lady that was a philosopher of sort. She would, uh, she had clever words of wisdom for about any subject that life could throw at you. And she would say, you can't really be happy. No one can really be happy unless you're capable of trying to make someone else happy. And life has told me that is very true. I learned that lesson. But some people are so me-oriented and so selfish that they can think of no one else but themselves. They can only think of what makes them happy or what they think makes them happy. These people are never happy. And those that are close to them are miserable. And the best way I found when you run across these people is give them lots of space. <laughs> but do these selfish, me-oriented people, do they love God? We know that some people are just easier to love than others. It's a fact. Some people, some people have, like they have a big sign around their neck, love me or hug me. Well, those people are easy to love, but we got to love the people that don't have the sign around their neck also. But we know that love is a very powerful human emotion. But so is hate. And I heard that hate and love are relatives. My mom used to tell me, be careful who you hate. You may love them someday. And that scared me to death sometimes. <laughs> but when hate is so powerful that it can ruin your life. It can take over your life. Let's take a quick look at what God hates. In Proverbs 6, 9, 16 through 19, God says, There are six things that the Lord hates. 
seven or abomination to him, haunty eyes. We all know haunty eyes, that look of judgment, that look of anger, that look of disgust. Haunty eyes, through your eyes you can see many things. A lying hands that uh, shed innocent blood, or lying hands, wait a minute, lying tongues and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceives, uh, devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. One that sows discord among, among brothers. I have known people that are not happy unless they're causing a stink, unless they're doing, making people mad and upsetting people, kind of like stirring the pot. Sometimes you think that these kind of people get an adrenaline rush out of this or something. They, they, they love it. I've seen them. But with hate, revenge always rears its ugly head. I guess revenge is a byproduct of hate. But not long ago, we had a sweet young lady give her heart to God and wanted to join our church. And while the session was talking to her, she said she used to think in her mind of ways she could get back and re exact revenge on people that she considered had done her wrong. And at that moment in time, that hit me, wow. I've done this and I didn't know that it was a sin, but that opened the door to a weakness that I had. But this young lady had no idea that these words were gonna open up a door for me, a better understanding of me and my sin. She had no idea that she had done that. But, And also, week before last, Pastor Chris kind of hit on the subject of revenge. He was talking about when God exacts his revenge on others that obviously were wrongdoers, like some of our politicians in Washington, D.C., Every once in a while, Lord, it seems like the Lord will exact his punishment on them. But when we think this, we have no right to feel joy from this. Well, man, Pastor Chris was talking about me. And I knew he was talking about me. I'd done it many times. And when he does that, you kind of slink down in your seat. Then you look up, and man, the dude's looking straight at you. He, he's, he's talking to me. Now, I've heard other people say this. It's not, I'm not the only one this happened to. It's happened to other people. 
But Pastor Griff, Chris is pretty good at that. But we all know that uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And that means, to me, that means we have no right passing judgment or exacting revenge on anybody. That is reserved for the Lord. But that's a weakness I have. And I hate it when he does that. Just really, when a preacher preaches to your weaknesses and he looks straight at you, that's tough. But why should we feel joy from anyone's misfortune or anyone's mis- or evil doings or things that happen to them? We have no, we shouldn't do that. But in closing, wow, it's not 115 yet, I know that. Uh, Well, but anyway, before I close, I want to read you something that, a commentary that I I, uh, read online. It is from a Baptist preacher. I had his name someplace, but even though he's a Baptist, I'll go ahead and read it anyway. It's pretty good. But it says, it said, love isn't produced by trying harder to master goodwill towards someone who is irritating or is hard to get along with. Instead, think of the process more like sap running through the branches of a grapevine. In a similar way, the Spirit follows us, follows through us in a, in a similar way, producing God's love so we can express it to Him and to others. Whenever we demonstrate kindness, patience, or gentleness, gentleness, it's not God's doing, or it is God's doing, not ours. Even the adoration we offer to Him isn't something we produce on our, on our own, in our own hearts, apart from His assistance. We don't do it on our own. Though the command to love is enormous, God's grace makes it possible. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we all know that we're born sinners, born with the ability to love and hate. We pray that love will become a blessing that directs our life And we pray that our love for you will spread throughout eternity. Amen. Please rise as we sing the word. 516. Thank you, Howie. Thank you.
family back. Evelyn, good to see you. We haven't seen them for a while. There's also uh, Peggy Ford and Don Ford. For those of you newer folks that uh, haven't met them, uh, sometimes there are physical things that have kept people out, especially during the COVID time. Please be careful of uh, Peggy because she has some uh, pretty serious illnesses. You've heard us pray for her so much that I wanted to point her out so you know who she is. This is Peggy and Don Ford over here, and Evelyn uh, is in the back. Okay, we are going to have a choir practice today at 5.30. I might be here alone, so it'll be a choir of one if y'all don't show up. Uh, anything else? All right, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to do the blessing. Lord, our God and Father, we just pray for your church. We pray for grace for you, Lord God. I believe that we are small, but we are mighty. You do great things through this church, Lord God, and it's a testimony to your strength and your power. You often choose to do powerful things through small devices that it may be known that you are the Lord. We pray, Lord God, for everyone here that as they depart from this building, you would pour out your spirit on them and bless them. Strengthen them, Lord God, and give them the words to say and the spirit to seek out things to be edifying for you. Give them great knowledge and skill and safety as they go from here. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. May the Lord our God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.